you brought your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you have. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, uh, let's start in chapter 5. My text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. But I want to give you a little context, so we'll start in verse 5 and kind of skim through a little bit till we get to the verses that we need to this morning. 2 Corinthians, now don't mix that up with 2 Chronicles. That's easy to mix up. First and Second Chronicles is back there in the Old Testament. First and Second Corinthians is in the New Testament. So I want you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter five. I'll give you just a moment longer. Now our text this morning is chapter six, verse two. But I want to go back here. I want to set it in context. If you look at the passage of Scripture, the context here, it starts way back in chapter five. And actually, verse 2 of chapter 6 is the last verse in that section of scriptures. So I want to give you a little context before we hit uh, uh, our main verse here. So if you started looking in verse 9 and 10, you would see it talking about the judgment seat of Christ, right? Verse 10, and I like to emphasize this verse because it's so important. Uh, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every man may receive the things done in his body according to that which he had done, whether it be good or bad. So the Apostle Paul is making the case here, right, that every one of us, right, there's no exception to everyone, every one of us. Uh, we get to thinking in our mind sometimes that, you know, once we get saved that all of a sudden we're exempt from all kinds of judgment. No, no, no. We are still uh, face judgment. It's just that Christ, and we're still guilty, just as guilty as we was before. It's just that Christ has paid the price for us, right? We're covered in the blood of Jesus, and he's paid the cry, price. But it says here, we're going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you get into these judgments, there's really a lot more to that. And so don't think for a minute that you're not going to be accountable for what you say and do. You absolutely will be accountable and have to give an account to God. But anyway, so he's making that point. And that's why he says in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade them. Right? He's talking about knowing and understanding that each and every one, everyone is going to have to stand before this judgment seat of Christ one day. Because of that, we persuade people. We share the gospel is what he's getting at. He's introducing the ministry of reconciliation that's being given to us. And so if we start looking at verse 12 uh, and 13, that's what he's talking about, right? Uh, If we get to verse uh, 14, it talks about how Christ uh, died for all, right? We get to, in verse 15, is talking about that. Um, We get to verse 17, there's a scripture that, actually, I think I used it last week, where it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's talking about, right, those that are persuaded, right, those that we reconcile to to God, they are in Christ and they become a new creature. They're a new person. You're born again, right? I, I think I talked about that last week. And so he's talking about that, right? And he rolls that into, if we're reconciled in verse 18, and all, um, let me see here, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, right? And so, so he's talking about, he's explaining this reconciliation. In verse 20, he says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, right? As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled 
to God. So he's going from talking about having given us, uh, those that are saved, Christians, the ministry of reconciliation, right? And we are to take this message by which people are reconciled, right? Because of what Christ did, right? That's what the message is. It's Jesus Christ and in him crucified and, and risen again. And so anyway, so by this message, right? Uh, this word of reconciliation, that is our ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ, right? That's the ambassador's job is to make this peace, this reconciliation, right? And in verse 21... And I, I cannot go through this without reading it to you. It is one of the most profound and at the same time mind-boggling verses in all of Scripture to me. Verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us. Talking about God has made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin. Not, not us. We, we definitely knew sin. We were uh, sinful creatures. Christ is the one who knew no sin, right? And so God made him to be sin, the one who knew no sin, right? The only sinless, perfect person to have ever lived, right? He made him to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him so that we could be reconciled to God. That's the point. That's what he's getting at here, right? And in verse six, he, or chapter 6 and verse 1, he goes on. He says, We then as workers together with him beseech you, also that you receive uh, not the grace of God in vain. And then he says here, he pulls out, uh, he quotes scripture, he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says, for he saith, he's talking about God said through the prophet Isaiah. Here's the quote. It's, I believe, Isaiah 49, if I remember right. He says, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Right? That means helped you, okay? And then the last part of this verse, right? So that's the quote. That's the end of the quote from Isaiah. And then here is Paul's, here's his move. Here's his punchline. Here is what, what he's trying to drive home. Remember Isaiah, he's quoted Isaiah talking about a day of salvation. Now he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of of salvation. So let me read all of verse 2 to you together and then let's go to the Lord together in prayer. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted and in the day of salvation have I secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you. We thank you for the good day, the many blessings. We thank you for everyone who you've sent our way, everyone who's come out this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the roof you put over our head, the nation that we live in, the freedom that we have to gather here without fear of any kind of persecution or anything like that. Lord, we thank you for each person, each one who fought, who sacrificed, who bled, and who died so that we might have this freedom. But we know that ultimately it is a gift from you. So we give you the glory for it. And we give you all the praise. And we come before you with thankful hearts. God, and, and most of all, above everything else, we're thankful that we are reconciled to you by Christ Jesus, by what he did. And so, Lord, we thank you most of all this morning for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that we're not worthy and we didn't deserve it. 
But God, you've done it anyways. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. So Lord, my prayer, maybe above everything else, is that we would always be a people with praise and glory on our lips for you. Because you alone are worthy of it. And Lord, I pray as we go forward into this service here this morning, just have your way and your will in our midst. You know our hearts, you know our needs, you know where we stand, you know where we fall short, you know what we're struggling with. There is nothing that is hidden to you here this morning. You're the searcher of hearts. You know our hearts, the, the deepest, darkest places in our heart are open and bare before you. So Lord, my prayer is that you would just pour out that old time Holy Ghost, conviction upon us, Lord, that your spirit would move mightily here this morning. God, that you would uh, convict us, that you'd lift us up, that you would comfort us. Lord, that those that stand in need of a touch from you, God, whatever it is, Lord, our, my, my heart's desire and our heart's desire is for your will to be done in this service here this morning, just as it is in heaven. <clears throat> so, Lord, I'm asking you, help me to get out of the way. Help every one of us to get our own wants and desires and thoughts out of the way and let you minister here by your spirit and let you just have your way and your will in our midst and we'll give you all the glory for it. And Lord, let me just say one more time for myself, I, I, I really need your help this morning. Clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words. Place on my tongue the very things you'd have me to say this morning. I'm asking for your anointing, for a filling of your Holy Spirit. God, have your way and your will here in our midst. And we'll give you the glory. Lord, if there's any here this morning that don't know you, oh Lord, let today be the day they get things right with you before it's everlasting too late. Let today be the day of salvation. We love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. And we ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. The point Paul is driving home in this section of scriptures is that day of salvation that Isaiah was talking about, that time that he was prophesying about. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is that time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I want to preach to you this morning with that thought on the premise that now is the right time. You know, uh, Satan is a master deceiver. He is. He's good at it. Listen to me. He is, come, he is here to steal, to kill, and destroy, right? That's what it tells us in John's gospel. That's what Satan's purpose, that's what he's up to that's what he's all about. Don't you be mistaken, right? Don't you be fooled by, by one moment. Even if, if he appears in his, his, his angels, even if they appear, right, as, as angels of light, right, uh, 
Don't you be fooled by them by, for one second, for one moment whatsoever, right? He is the master deceiver. That's why he's here, right? That's what he's trying to do. He is the father of, of lies. And so anyways, and he's good. Don't underestimate his ability. I'm not wanting you to leave here scared of him and run around scared, right? And the, re- the reason that you shouldn't fear him is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? That's talking about the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ that resides in you once you are saved. Hey, if you're not saved, you ought to be shaken, right? You ought to be, as the saying goes, you ought to be shaken in your boots. You ought to be scared. That's just the way that it is. But if you are saved, if you're born again by the spirit of God, greater is he that is in you, right? Because when you get saved, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside of you and greater is he than, than Satan who is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So anyway, so I want, I don't want you to leave here scared of Satan, but I want you to leave I want you to leave here wise. I want you to leave here understanding exactly who your adversary is. And he is the adversary of your soul. Right? He desires just as he desired to sift Peter as wheat, so does he desire to sift you, right? He does, in other words, he desires to destroy you, to crush you. He is the master of deceiver. He's been telling lies since the Garden of Eden, right? So in other words, since the beginning of time. And he is very good at it. I think his most deceptive work. I mean, give the devil his due, right? Give him his credit. I think his most deceptive work is convincing the world that he does not exist. Have you ever thought about that? Listen to me. The very fact that we believe that Satan is not just a symbol of evil but we believe that he is the embodiment of evil and that he is actually a physical, real entity that exists and is walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The fact that we literally believe that as the truth The world looks at us and says that we're stupid. I I mean, I just kind of said it in blunt terms. They will say that we are, what's some of the terms that they use? They will say that we are, I don't know, I I can't think of a better way to say it. They, They think that we're ignorant, that we're uneducated. Eccentric, fanatic, yes, absolutely. They think that we're silly. They think that we, uh, uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for right now. They say, think that we, that we are caught up in, you know, old wise tales, myths, fables, right? That, that kind of, you know, we're just backwards, right? We're just dumb. We just don't get it, right? What we do is we try to 
things that we can't understand. We try to contribute it. We've got to attribute that to something. So we attribute it to Satan, right? We can't understand wickedness and evil and corruption and you know all of these things that are happening. We can't understand why some of the things happen the way they do in the world. So we have to make up fables and legends and myths, right? And attribute it to something. And we believe in a book, right, for an ancient people that maybe was good for them because they were just stupid and they did. I mean, that's what it boils down to, right? You listen to all the things that they say, and really what they're saying is they're saying you're stupid. Okay, here's the sad part. That's been being said for a long time. Don't think, don't go back to the 1950s and think everything was perfect and great and everybody believed them because they didn't. It started before that, right? They've been saying it for a long, long time. In our, in our culture, right, we can go back to the, to the I start to say 1800s, the 1700s, though, and we can see that. And we definitely see it in the late 1800s, and, you know, the period of enlightenment and all that, you know. And, and we become, we get beyond all of this, right? And evolution comes onto the scale, right? And able to explain things, you know, scientifically and in any ways. The sad part is, is many in the church, they think about this and they think about what the smart people and the scholarly and, you know, all these respectable people are saying. And they're insulted and horrified by it. In the same thought, they begin to latch on to it. You know, that's not really what. They start to symbolize everything in the Bible. And, and you know, nothing is to be taken literal. And they go, you know what? Satan is just the personification of. He's just, you know, he represents all evil. He, he doesn't literally exist. If you don't think that's Satan's greatest deception, I'd like to hear what you think is. You ever thought about this? United States of America right now, now it may change soon, but right now, we are the world's superpower. Greatest army on the face of the earth. If we were all in and willing to do whatever it took, and I, as we were unified as a nation and all in, nobody could defeat us right now. But, what if we went to war with an army or an, against an enemy and we didn't even believe the enemy existed. How would all that strength and power do then? Satan is the master of deception. He's convinced the world and a large number of the church into believing that he does not even exist. He, he, that is the master of deception. I think about this, and I was just wondering, right? Here's my train of thought. I asked uh, Sister Jackie to read the scriptures that she did. Some of you that are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, you might have been sitting there thinking, why did she not finish? Why did she only read part of it, not the whole story? That was on purpose. That's the way that I wanted it. 
Because at that point in, the, in it, right, you remember what she read, right? That here, he, here is the prodigal son. He wanted his inheritance. His father give it to him, right? I mean, he's asking for it before his father's even passed away. He wants his share of his dad's stuff, right? Like his dad's already dead. And anyways, and so, the, the, so his father gives it to him. What does he do? He wastes it on riotous living, right? He goes out and he lives it up. He goes out and he parties until it's all gone, right? We know how that goes, right? You got money, you got friends. When the money's gone, so is the friends gone. That's the situation he finds himself in, right? To the point, right, that, he is, uh, that he's got a job slopping hogs, Okay, you got to understand, to the Jews, that would have been the worst. That would have been the lowest of lowest, right? Because this is an unclean animal, and here he is. He's in a continuous state of being unclean. His job is defeated, and he got so bad, so down on his luck, so far when he hits the bottom before he comes to himself, or when he comes to himself, that, he, that what the slop that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him to eat. He desired just some of the pig slop to get down there and to eat in the trough with the pigs. And then he comes to himself. Of course, the rest of the story is a happy ending, right? He goes back home and he's received. But I was wondering how many times along the way the, the prodigal son thought about going home. I'm just speculating, I'm just wondering, I'm just basing this off of uh, what I know of the prodigal son story and what I know of how Satan works. The scripture reveals to us on how Satan works and how he does things. And I just wonder how many times along the way the prodigal son thought about returning home, right? Returning to his father, right? How many times he thought about going back and just maybe, right? Maybe he did. And if he did, I can hear Satan come along and whisper in his ear, just wait. You can always do that later. Right? Your father will always be there. There's more time, right? You can return later. That's the natural tendency, right? And I wonder how much lower he went, right? If, if that was the case, and that is the angle that Satan is using with him, right? I wonder how much lower he sunk, right, before he finally come to himself and went back home, right? Because that is the natural tendency of the flesh, right? That is our natural human tendency is to put things off, to procrastinate, right? To, that, that's my story, right? It's not that I didn't know for a long time that I needed to get saved and get right and, and get in the Lord's house and get to serving God, right? I know that for a long time before I did. But I kept putting it off. There'll be plenty of time for that later. That's not something that I want to do right now. That doesn't fit, right, with my lifestyle. Doesn't fit with my plan. Doesn't fit with what I want to do right now. I can do that later. Well, I want to tell you something. We do not have the promise of another opportunity. Our text here today reminds us that the right time is right now. We're not promised tomorrow. The truth is, is that yesterday is gone and tomorrow may never get here. And I know what you might be thinking. You might be sitting there thinking about the rapture of the church. Listen to me. And that may very well be the case, right? I'd say there's a, there's a, good, there's a good chance tomorrow won't come. 
But there's even a better chance that tomorrow might not come for you. We prayed this morning for a man that tomorrow will not come for him. Or we didn't pray for him, we prayed for his family. But tomorrow will not come for him. Tomorrow may not come for you. Today may be the day that God requires your soul. So all that you have is right now. Now is the only time that you got. The right time, the accepted time is right now. Let me, let me just give you a few things real quick and I'll be done. Now is the right time to be saved, right? Everything is ready, right? Jesus came, well, let's start this way. Jesus came at the right time. That's why it says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now is the right time, right? The gospel message was delivered at exactly the right time and has come to us, right, through the apostles. And now the gospel continues to be proclaimed by believers, by us, by the church around the world. And it contains everything that is needed, everything pertaining to life, right? So listen to me. Today is the day. Now is the right time. In James chapter 4, he talks about uh, people that go, that, uh, go and, and that they say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there for a year and, and buy and sell and get gain, right? And he says, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your soul? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. Psalms 103 tells us in verse 15, As for man, his days are as grass, as the flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. I, I'm going to end with this. I'm, not, I'm just getting started on what I wanted to preach this morning. Lord willing, I'll keep preaching it to, tonight about what is the right time. But let me say this, the most important thing is Jennifer gets ready to come for a song of invitation. Now is the right time to be saved. Listen to me. The scriptures I just quoted to you is telling us that life is short. Life is short. Maybe even shorter than you think. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time, right? I, I, I'm going to talk about sin, and I'm going to talk about serving God and all those kinds of things tonight, uh, Lord willing. But listen to me. You may not have tonight. You might not have another opportunity beyond right now. What the Apostle Paul said to, to the Corinthians here in chapter 6 when he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Right? He quoted Isaiah about the day of salvation and then he tells them, This is it. This is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the time. Satan, what I said to begin with is Satan said that well, you have plenty of time. I wonder if he kept telling the prodigal son that he had plenty of time. But listen to me. You aren't guaranteed anything 
pass right now. If you are lost, do not be deceived into thinking that you will get things right another day. There may not be another day. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Will you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come this morning. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come? Don't wait any longer. Don't wait any longer, all right? Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is your time. Right now is when the Spirit of God is dealing with you. Now is when God is calling you. Now is the day. Now is the time, right? We don't know the future. God knows the future, but we don't know the future. Don't put off for tomorrow, right? I'm begging you, would you come this morning? Whatever the need, whatever the burden is, would you come this morning? Now is the accepted time. Now is the right time. Would you come this morning? Would you come?